0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, everyone. Here we are. Lots to talk about. Lots to discuss. Lots to explore. We have a very special guest today here to talk about Kafka's metamorphosis. Maybe we're going to talk about metamorphoses in general. Transformations. Going into your shell and coming out again caterpillars exploding into butterflies. And Jack Wilson, your humble narrator, looking back 30 years to that moment when he went down this crazy path of literature. The journey begins. The journey continues for all of us today on the History of Literature. here we go. Like I said, we have a lot going on today. Where to begin? How about this? Our Instagram account. I've signed up there too, or I should say I've started stopping by, commenting. There's a history of literature podcast account that the helpful folks at the podglomerate maintained. And then there's me, the real Jack Wilson, with a portrait of me pretending to look like Chekhov. Well, actually, it is Chekhov. Pretending to look like Jack Wilson. Oh, he wishes. (laughs) I'm kidding. Of course, Chekhov can take a little humor, a little ribbing. Just like our subject today, Franz Kafka. Wasn't the slogan of this show, Laugh Your Head Off, at one point? I called it that for a while, didn't I? Laugh Your Head Off. What a crazy expression. Goodbye, head. Sorry, I laughed too hard. And why is everyone crying all of a sudden? I'm just going to pick up my head and put it back on my neck. Not a problem, unless it's a shattered pumpkin. Oh, it's Halloween month, October, my favorite time of year. Jonah Lair is going to be here next week talking about his new book, which is all about mysteries and how they work, why they please us. And in honor of Halloween and the History of Literature podcast Instagram account, we're going to run a free promotion over there. We're giving away signed copies of Jonah's book, Mystery. He's helping us out here. What a great guy. So smart and so generous. Our thanks to him. So next week, we will be hosting a giveaway in our Instagram at History of Literature. Follow along for more updates. Okay, today is a big day for me. Let me give you some background and tell you about our guest Do I need to tell you about Kafka, too? We've talked about him before. I don't think I need to tell you much. He was a Czech writer, endlessly tortured. He lived in the shadow of an enormous castle in Prague. By day, he worked in an insurance office. At night, he wrote for hours. He had a sign over his desk that said, WAIT, in all caps. He wanted to get literature right And he wrote these fascinating stories. They're darkly funny and endlessly inventive, absurd sometimes, bizarre. Other times just zeroed in on what's important. They are cries in the night, howls in the wind, rages against the 20th century machine. Protests at well, what was he protesting exactly? How the world works against us all the time and how we try to fight back because we are humans and we're all inside this bizarre set of structures that the world imposes on us. He wrote gem after gem after gem, a few amazing short stories and a few really good novels too, The Trial, The Castle. And when he was in his early thirties, he wrote one of world literature's masterpieces, The Metamorphosis. The first line of that story, one morning, Gregor Samsa woke in his bed from uneasy dreams and found he had turned into a huge, verminous insect. Literature changed forever with that line, and that story, it still reverberates today. We were shocked into awareness, it seems, shocked by this quiet little bookkeeper with an imagination as powerful as a fire-breathing dragon. Kafka wrestled with his demons during those evenings. He plunged into the depths of despair and he etched his ideas into immortal sentences. He's dark. He's funny. He's a craftsman, an artist, a genius, a true favorite of mine, a personal hero. I've been reading Kafka for 30 years. I'm as delighted now as I was back then. But guess what? I'm not sure who I was back then. I know I loved books. I know I was insane. I know I was friends with Mike. I know I was starting to travel. I know I was falling into something deep and I had uh, no idea where to go. I know that too. But it's not like physical appearance where a photograph can remind you of what you look like. There's no photograph of the inside of your mind. Or is there? Let me let that question hang for a moment as I turn to an email. This comes from listener Joshua, writing from Texas. Subject, literature and life. Hey Jack, I've been listening to the show here in Texas for about a year now and I've absolutely loved it. Whether it has been finding new authors or listening in about old favorites, your discussions and thoughts are my absolute favorites for literature. I'm about to graduate from undergrad with a degree in English and minor in creative writing and am heading towards an MFA in the fall of 2022. As a young man in his early 20s, I was wondering if I could have some advice about what jobs you have done or how you supported yourself in your early 20s while traveling and earning an MFA yourself while finding so much time to read. I have really disliked the jobs I've worked in college. And the day I graduate, I want to leave and find something closer to what I love while also finding more time to read and focus on writing. I'm just not at all into any sort of that typical American dream. And your stories from your 20s are a living example of the ideals I've had for myself once I graduate. I just sort of need to figure out practically how to be able to survive while focusing on the things I love. I love the show and can't wait for all the future episodes and any advice is much appreciated as I don't really have anyone in my life who has been down any path like this before me. All the best, Joshua. Well, Joshua, what can I, an old man, tell you about the young Jack Wilson? If only there were a way for me to recreate my past thoughts and ideas. Hold that thought. Here's what I can tell you about the mechanics of how things worked for me. Unfortunately, they didn't work all that well. (laughs) My, (laughs) My path is not necessarily one I would recommend to anyone. It's been one round of disappointments after another, but I was in your exact position. So why don't I tell you about the journey I took and let you decide whether to follow that or something similar, or maybe you can avoid it. Maybe you can learn from my mistakes. So let me start with the similarities, Joshua, so we can see if we're on the same page. Let's see. Graduating from undergrad, check. That was me. Degree in English, check. Headed toward an MFA, check. I didn't do that right out of college, but a few years later. Young man in his early 20s, check. Not sure how to support himself while traveling and earning an MFA, while finding so much time to read, check, check, and check. Have really disliked the job so far, check, check. Not in on the American dream, not sure, not sure how to follow that, check. My jobs weren't really sustainable, and neither were my dreams. Quote, the day I graduate, I want to leave and find something closer to what I love, while also finding more time to read and focus on writing, end quote. Huge check. Trying to figure out how to be able to survive while focusing on the things I love, check. Underline, Circle. We'll come back to this. So, first of all, I kind of thought the MFA would help. I didn't think they'd make me a writer. That would be up to me. But I thought maybe there would be some kind of path coming out of there, advertising or publishing or something, something creative, something part-time, something not too draining. I figured the students would all be in the same boat, and not all of us would be professional fiction writers or poets, of course. Not all of us would be teachers, not yet anyway. And so we'd all be looking for something creative, and yet still giving us the freedom to be writers. But nope, nothing like that. A classmate of mine put this question to a famous writer who was visiting the program. She said, how do you do it? How do you pay the bills? How how did you do it before you got famous? And he said, can I ask if you're seeing anyone? Do you have anyone in your life, any relationship? She was shocked and offended. She thought he was hitting on her, ignoring her question and hitting on her instead. But he went on and said, no, no, do you have a serious relationship in your life? Are you married? Because what he was really saying was, ideally, your partner or spouse will pay your bills. That's what he meant. Not, I hope you're single. This is a non sequitur. But if I'm honest with you, my wife worked like a dog while I stayed home with the typewriter. That's what he was saying. He told us that. Then he made it big and he got divorced because every single writer is a jerk, except for you and me, Joshua, and all the writers who have appeared on the podcast, of course. So ask the famous writer, how did you pay for yourself? And he reframes it as, who's going to pay for you? Your parents, your girlfriend, your wife, who? Who? Because if it's you, if you're paying your own way, you're going to be miserable. That was what he was telling us. Well, great. But what if that's not your style? If it is your style, if you could live off of someone else, if you're that blessed and fortunate, then good luck. I hope things work out for you. And please don't divorce that person when you make it, or at least be respectful and kind and grateful because that is a huge burden to have someone else pay for you. It was just not something I could offload on anyone else. My parents are paupers. They chose happiness over wealth, which is fine. They have lived good lives. And my wife has her own career devoted to literature, which didn't have any extra for me. And with kids on the way, I was torn. I couldn't justify tapping out stories and sending them around because I just couldn't deal with being that person. And I didn't want to be the guy shouting at his kids to be quiet. Because there was more. To me, I was torn between life and literature. The the subject of your email, literature and life. Not just because I wanted things, although I did want things, not for myself so much, but for my family. But I wanted to live. I wanted to live. I didn't want to hide in an attic and not be a person in the world. I didn't want to live on ketchup sandwiches. I wanted to embrace life fully, breast to breast with the cosmos, as D.H. Lawrence used to say. So let me go back to those days before the MFA, before the family. I was alone. I could do whatever. I was in your shoes. Great. Freedom. No money, but freedom. What did I do? Everyone around me was geared for success that American dream you're talking about. Well, there was Mike, but Mike was a year behind me in school, so he still had a year left. He had that. All my other friends were headed toward jobs, careers, plans. I had nothing. I knew I wanted to travel, but I had no money. So finally an opportunity came up and I grabbed it with both hands. My cousin was in Taiwan teaching English. He was a traveler and not that reliable, the sort of guy who might save your life one day and disappear the next, the most incredible person you've ever met, and then a ghost for two weeks. Where did he go? (laughs) He said, come to Taiwan. I was writing him letters. I hope you're still there. I'm coming. I'll see you soon. I hope. It was a leap of faith, but it worked out. I made money, and from there I traveled around the world for two years backpacking. I went to Tibet and never really came down. Nothing made sense to me after that except books. I'd come back, and my friends would be sailing along in their jobs or their graduate school programs, and I'd think, what? Who? How? They jumped into this machine, and they seemed happy. And Well, actually, that's not true. They seemed content where they seemed steady. They seemed on their way, but lots of them were miserable. They were in the machine, like Chaplin in modern times, being cranked through those gears. And they would write me letters and say, don't do this. Don't go to law school. Don't go to business school. I wish I was making films. I wish I was taking photographs. I wanted to be a dancer. I started reading poetry at night all letters i got from friends in this period and they would say i wish i was living like you in all caps and i'd think but why aren't you is this so bad is what i'm doing so scary is it so bad it's like those people with some huge flaw that they can't see am i really so hideous why are you saying you want to be like me but not actually being like me is this so bad i bounced around I got odd jobs, picked up money here and there, lived cheap. I would have these intense feelings that I couldn't fill my days with enough, that there wasn't enough time. I would think, I've never seen the Great Wall. How can I live if I haven't seen the Great Wall of China? The clock is ticking. Days are going by. Calendar pages falling off, and I've never seen that thing. And Then I would read Boswell's Life of Johnson, and here was the great man himself, Dr. Johnson. Wishing he could go to the Great Wall and urging others to go and saying, your descendants will pride themselves on having an ancestor who visited the Great Wall. And I would think, my God, that's so true. And here I am in Taiwan, close to the Great Wall. I must go. But also, I must have descendants who will admire me for having gone. How will that fit? How do I go to the Great Wall and have descended? That's another project. So I went to the Great Wall, walked it up and down. Tears in my eyes having finally made it. Well, okay, I've seen some photos that other people took. I never traveled with a camera. I wanted just to take everything in with my eyes and be present for what I was seeing. So I finally made it to the Great Wall, but I wouldn't be thinking just of the Great Wall. I'd be thinking of Johnson and Boswell, too, and I'd be thinking of Little League myself in Little League and my imagined kids, those descendants playing Little League. I wanted to be at the Great Wall, a great traveler and a reader and a writer immersed in literature, but I wanted to be in life too, a husband, a dad, a person. And even when I was traveling through all those countries, China, Tibet, Nepal, India, Morocco, Spain, France, Italy, Scotland, all of them, too many to list, Russia, with the Soviet-era women barging into me with arms full of potatoes. My God, those were crazy years. Even when I was living, living hard, seeing every sunrise and every sunset in a new place, rattling around on buses and in jeepneys and rickshaws and on the backs of camels, I was thinking, oh, should I have two kids or one kid or three? What's ideal? And public schools are good, right? A nice public school for them. West Coast, East Coast, where should I live? Somewhere safe with crossing guards and birthday parties and taking little trips together to the beach, piano lessons and walks through the woods. Just a small family spending time together. I must have that too, right? And then to make sense of all this, I developed the idea that I was creative, a kind of rebel, someone who lived in a different way, someone who could watch films and read books and think about ideas. But how? Why me? Nobody paid me to do this. Nobody was offering money to be to be what I wanted to be. And so finally, I fell into a career, which is a whole other story I'll talk about someday, but not today. It was lots of hours. Bringing home the bacon, helping my wife pursue her dream, helping my kids turn from genius babies into charming children, into fine Upstanding young men and me trying to figure out how I had gone from this guy traveling through Tibet, riding high on the highest road in the world, stowing away in the back of a truck, hidden under blankets in a bus that crashed, all that, all those years of trying to vacuum up life and drink it all in. How was I now just a guy like anyone else, except I was so miserable, except I was so joyous? So I stayed a deep into the night and woke early in the morning trying to organize all this in some way. I barely slept. My mind could not stop whirling around. I was exhausted all the time, sleep-deprived, but pushing ahead with a kind of manic spirit. Adrenaline, caffeine, I don't know, forced positivity. I was, looking back, insane. I might still be. And I was writing, but nobody cared. I was getting older, and I knew it. I prioritized everyone else, but why wouldn't I? These were my loved ones. They deserved it. I was getting old, and I knew it. I remembered that movie I'd seen long ago in college, the one where Ted Danson was a cousin or something. It was a French movie remade for Hollywood. And someone looks at Ted Danson and says, he's a failure at everything but life. And I had known as soon as I heard that line that that would be me. If I tried anything conventional, this was in college. If I tried to be a normal person living in a normal way, I would fail. I knew it. I knew it with certainty because the normal way, which seemed straightforward enough, never fit for me and I couldn't really figure out why. And there was no abnormal way that did not look like failure. I wish I could say I failed at everything but life, but I'm pretty sure that I failed at that too. So that was me. That's my advice. Live like your hair is on fire, Joshua, not just your hair. Your head, your mind, your whole body on fire. Let life burn in you because guess what? That fire died down. I got older. I got married. I had kids. My family became dependent on me and they didn't need some globe-trotting weirdo running around spitting out all these ideas. They needed a dad, and they have had one, and that's been fantastic. The globe-trotting weirdo spitting out ideas would have gotten tiresome, even, I suspect, to himself. Life is too important. So the fire stopped blazing. It got pale. It got cold. It grew dark, except except it didn't really go out, Joshua. There was always that spark, always that core of red embers glowing, ready to flare up again with a breath or two. I stopped traveling to Tibet, except I didn't. I'm still there. I stopped reading 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, except I didn't really. I still have that mindset. I think like that. I stopped believing that I was some wild spirit who had some some purpose, some calling, except I didn't. I didn't give up. I've got some new books now, and I'm just as enthusiastic about those things as ever. It's a crazy scheme, of course, a vision of a book, a different kind of book, which is a really dumb plan. Publishers like safe bets, and this is not a safe bet. It's a whole new kind of book. It's never been done before, but it's something I needed to do because I can't be anything I can't do anything other than be me, it seems, and to let myself be me. I have to float along on these dreams. At Home Depot, buying a part to fix a toilet. With my mind in the stars. So, that's the me now. The old man. You'll see the roaring fire in a moment. The burning man. Because we have a time capsule today of sorts. We're traveling back in time to the young Jack Wilson, the me in my 20s. This was a shock to me to be able to do this. It's not something I expected. So let's bring out our guest. She is an old and dear friend. It's the craziest story, one of the weirdest connections I have. I always called her the little flower in English or bloomy. In German, she'll tell the story of how we met, so I won't spend too much time on that. We corresponded with a blizzard of letters, and she kept them. We stopped writing letters when email came about, and life interrupted. And then, decades later, recently, we connected again on LinkedIn, of all things, the most professional of all the social, social media sites. They're among the resumes and job descriptions and And here's me in a necktie. Here's me in a business suit. These two youngsters, all grown up now. I mean, I was 20 years old when we met. It's astonishing how young I was. And she was even younger. I wrote in a letter to her. I was writing from Italy, and she was in Munich living with her parents. I wrote, are you about 16 in one letter? And she wrote back in all caps. And by the way, I am 17. (laughs) exclamation marks. This is early, early stuff, young people's stuff. And we wrote back and forth for several years. She'll tell you the story. I'm stepping all over it. But now, after we have found each other on LinkedIn, she started listening to the podcast and she said, this is you. It's the same you, the same Jack Wilson. It's like, it's like it's 1991 all over again. I had a hard time believing that, but I said, well, why don't you come on and talk about Kafka? I've always wanted to ask you about reading Kafka in German, always, lifelong dream. We're coming up on episode 350 soon. We could celebrate that. We're coming in a little early, 349, but might as well treat myself for these nice milestones. could talk to to talk about coffee. My lifelong dream. And she protested, no thanks, not interested. And I begged and pleaded. And finally she said, fine, I'll do it. But only if I can read the letters you wrote to me so the listeners can hear who you were when you were 20. That was a little daunting. I knew I would be embarrassed, shockingly humiliated, but I agreed. I was right, by the way, about the humiliation. These are brutal for me to hear, but I made a deal, so I'm keeping it, at least in part. We're going to hear one letter, not six. Not the six she wanted to read. So here we go. Our special guest here to talk about Kafka and the metamorphosis and literature and life after this. (laughs) Hey, joining me now is our old friend Blume, a vice president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's coming to us from Munich, Germany. She's here today to talk about life, literature, and Kafka's metamorphosis. Blume, welcome to the history of literature.
1: Hello, Hans. Good to hear you. <laughs>
0: okay, so let's go back a bit. This is a pretty <laughs> special day for me. As listeners to the podcast know, I am on a journey through literature. That started about 30 years ago. And and my listeners know, they, well, they've been with me for the last five years of that. But in the early years, before podcasts, before the internet, before email even, there were a handful <laughs> of people who were there at the outset. Mike Palindrome was there from day one. And then a few months after Mike, maybe about a year later, you were there. So we met and became pen pals and have been friends ever since. How amazing is that? <laughs>
1: Absolutely, and do your listeners know how we met? We don't, do they? They
0: probably don't. Do you want and to tell them? And they
1: don't know why you call me Blume and I call you Hans.
0: Oh. Yeah. Well, okay.
1: I think they want to know that, don't they? Okay.
0: Well, let me say this first, which is that I am incredibly embarrassed to be talking about this stuff. And you told me that you have some old letters that I wrote to you back in the day. And I know I was talking about books back then and and literature. And so I think it's worth sharing with people. But I am absolutely terrified because I feel like my younger self was kind of a a strange creature. And I'm, I'm just... I don't know. So you can you could go ahead and tell them uh, whatever you want. This is (laughs)
1: don't don't (laughs) (laughs) be embarrassed. No. Okay, (laughs) but yeah, yeah, I do
0: think that I might learn something about literature based on what I was saying back then, because you know, it's like notes to your future self in a way I can look back and, and yeah. see, did that come true or do I still think that and, and that kind of thing. But maybe we should set some context. So uh, was I in Chicago writing to you or Taiwan or, or do you want to talk about when we first met?
1: Um, well, the story was when we first met. I, I'm not sure if I get it straight. So let's hmm. compare maybe. Yeah, right. So as, as far as I know, there was a 91 Oktoberfest Mm-hmm. and we met just at probably 11 o'clock when they finished and they closed down the Oktoberfest and we're just getting out of the tent and I was there with a friend and you were there with two friends as well and you approached us and you said, in German, you said, wo kann man hier das <laughs> Tanzbein schwingen," Which means, <laughs> when you translate it, it's where can you swing the dancing leg around here? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very, very old saying, and you got that from a little dictionary. We had a
0: little dictionary, yeah.
1: Probably you got it from your Swiss grandmother. I can imagine. Yeah, I don't
0: know. Yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> so, but I, I can remember. We had this little phrase book. So we were coming up from Italy. We were studying abroad. We got on the train, and we were coming up to Oktoberfest. We were all excited, and I had never really—I well, had never been to Germany before. I had never been out of the country, out of America, before until. I went to Italy. And so, what I didn't realize after having only been in Italy is that everyone in, in Germany spoke such good English that, you know, we had this little phrase book and we got off the train and said, like, Wo ist der Oktoberfest? And people <laughs> would just respond in these perfect English paragraphs. And you were quite young, still in high school. And yeah. spoke English then probably better than I've ever spoken any foreign language, including Italian since. So it was uh, it was fun to be able to to talk to you. And it's sort of a credit, I think, to to uh, Germans that you're so good at, at learning foreign languages.
1: Oh, thank you. So what did we do after that? We you said we'll um, come on here to Tanzsband Schwingen, and yeah. we we went, to a, we went cafe, to a little cafe, I think. Yeah, and you had a ice beer, and I had a hot chocolate. <laughs> i
0: think <laughs> that what sounds it, right but, yeah yeah and then and we, we talked we talked for hours we
1: talked about, yeah we talked about politics and we talked about books already and and we exchanged addresses and then we started our pen pal ship
0: yeah <laughs> that's all it was and that yeah, and,
1: and then we, and now we're here with 50 or yeah 40 or yeah. 50 letters. My dear friend Hans.
0: Yeah, and now you—we haven't really talked. We've been talking today a little bit, but it's been years and years since we talked. We've been touching base now and then on social media, and then we reunited or reconnected, I guess I should say. And uh, you've been listening to the podcast, and we thought, yeah. let's talk about Kafka. And I am interested to hear from you. Your Reaction to Kafka in German and what that's like and when you read Kafka in translation. So let's get there. But before mm-hmm. we do that, you picked out a few passages from yeah. those early letters. So
1: And the first one I'm going to read today is, <laughs> um, you sent me that letter from Chicago and you just discovered Rilke for the first time. Oh, yeah. And you were over the moon with joy. Mm. Okay. Hello, Esther. Esther, I have just read Rilke for the first time. And I am now his devoted slave. Das Buch is wunderbar. <laughs> <laughs> and then you um, write down the um, the Song of the Waves, the poem about the orphan mm. in German, but I'm not going to read that. Oh, meine liebe Fräulein, you are so lucky. I can't understand the poems like you can in German, but someday I will cry with joy when I can pick up a Rilke poem and read it in Deutsch. Oh, Esther, these are marvelous, marvelous little friends I now have. I read them as if I were taking drugs or eating chocolates. The day you were born, you must have looked out of your crib and said, I'm glad I'm in Germany. Now I will be able to read Rilke in German. (laughs) I I almost can't open the book because my hands tremble so much. Esther, you must promise me that the next time we see each other, you will explain to me these poems in German. Mm. I want to watch your eyes take them from the page and then hear them come out of your mouth. How soon it will be. And I will ask all of your friends to read them too, and all of the people in the stores and on the streets, and in every restaurant, and all my friends at the Munich train station, and my Swiss relatives who will add their charming accents to the chorus of Rilke. Munich, Stuttgart, Berlin, Frankfurt, Hamburg, everyone will be smiling and crying and blessing the air with these little poems. Oh, I love being a human being, but if I couldn't be a human, I would be a little Rilke poem. (laughs) That's so, don't laugh. It's so cute. It's so, it's amazing, really. Um, I, could, I would be a little Rilke poem. So I could sit in a book until someone reads me. And then I would shine in the sun and bathe in the tears of my reader. And I would bring love and enchantment to millions of people and millions, uh, for millions of years. But each time it would just be me and the one person. So that the one person thought he could own me and that he was the first person to ever have me. well I know I've done it again and talked about a book more than myself but these books constitute my life and yet I am not a person who sits in the library all the time I love to live I love life I just want every day every piece of food I eat every conversation I have with a friend to be as packed with emotion and spirit and excitement as a Rilke poem that was pretty ambitious Hans (laughs) I'm I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and in my mind I have jumped over and over and over and over and plunged through the interminable happy voice. This is what life is. Okay, okay. So once again, Esther thinks Jack is a strange man. Well, there are also enough boring things about him to make him very acceptable in social circles. (laughs) Take care, my little bloomer, Jack. (laughs) Wasn't that great? And uh, to embarrassed about. are
0: you kidding <laughs> are you Go kidding that I, I am the thing that I have in common with whoever that person was is I am crying but now it is tears of great shame and embarrassment
1: I, what I, a
0: weirdo why,
1: why are you saying this
0: you must have thought I was insane you must have thought here's another letter from my lunatic friend
1: no, no, it was great. I mean, <laughs> come on, you were 20, 21, 2021. 20, yeah. That's I true. Mean, That's the true. Other guys at that age, they get drunk every night, you know? I mean, and you were yeah. just in love with Rilke.
0: I was. You Don't know, it's it. funny. I have no memory of writing that at all. This is like a, uh, it's like I'm traveling. It's, like it's like I'm opening up a time capsule. But yeah, I mean, um, what do so you, but I haven't, I mean, I guess I haven't really changed. In exactly. a way, I just I wouldn't
1: see Paris, Why would you? You're I, still the same. person. I'm still it's the future- same
0: person, but I would not say that now. I would not write it. I would be way too, just embarrassed to do. It. Although some some listeners of the podcast might <laughs> they might disagree, they might say, uh, "Well, this is kind of what you do every week." In a way, but that's a little carried away. That's a little over the top.
1: But um, yeah, if I can't be a human being, I would be a little Rilke poet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that part I find embarrassing, although I did kind of like the idea.
1: It that idea is amazing, really.
0: <laughs> I like the idea. The one thing I liked in that was the idea that I was telling you you must have been excited when you were a baby to look out of your crib and say, no! "Now I get to." Read. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm so glad I'm German <laughs> and I get to read Rilke in German. <laughs> yeah. You see that, Joshua? Did you hear that in those letters, the burning? You probably feel like that sometimes too, right? Like you want to be literature? Well, maybe not. Maybe you're not. (laughs) Maybe that was just me. Don't feel bad if you're not a, a lunatic like yours truly, but maybe you'll have a little flower of your own to share some thoughts with, and maybe she'll come back someday in your life like a friendly guardian angel to remind you of your former spirit blume had six of these passages to read i could only bear to impose one of them on you dear listeners but the other five were the same or they all said the same thing in different ways they said what was most on my mind when i was 20 and 22 and 24 they said i love literature and i want to do nothing but literature but i want to live life too how do i do both And in one of them, she had written to me and said she'd like to study literature too, but there's no money in it. So she was asking my advice, and I wrote this impassioned letter in response saying, don't think about the money. My friends are all headed for lucrative careers, or not lucrative, but at least steady, and they don't have what I have. They don't have hearts full of Rilke and Kafka like I do. It's a better way to be, Bloomy. And she took my advice and studied literature for exactly half a year, and got the hell out. And she's been pretty happy ever since. She's one of the sunniest people I know. She works and raises her daughter and reads now and then on the side. Good for her. All good life choices. Thank God I didn't drag her down into my pit. Okay, enough of that. Good luck to you, Joshua. I hope you find your way. And if groping in the dark is the only way forward, keep your eyes open because there may be some rays of light that find you at some point. You never know when that will happen or how or from where. Be ready to open up. Flowers were born to bloom. So enough of that. Let's turn to literature now. Speaking of rays of light, will we find any in this story of Kafka's, this bleak, bleak story of a man who wakes up as a monstrous verminous bug, a beetle, an insect. Our friend May and I will continue our 30-year correspondence with you as the flies on our wall. Or should I say the monstrous vermin in the next room listening through the door. We'll have that after this. Okay, we're back. We're talking with our old friend from Munich who's here for some Kafka. Very old. Ah, <laughs> What place does Kafka hold in the minds of Germans? I've been waiting 30 years to ask you this.
1: <laughs> well, well, he plays a very important role in Germany. He's one of the major German-speaking writers of the 20th century. Yeah, And he's definitely among the heavyweights like um, Thomas Mann and Hermann Hesse in that period. I mean, you would probably say, Hans, you would say he's a household name and he's read at school a lot as well. I mean, it depends where you are in Germany, because we have different federal states and they all have a different education system. But um, so in most of the states, Kafka is not mandatory to read at school like Fontane and Schiller and Goethe and Lessing and Heine. But still a lot of teachers teach him and read him. And would um, you
0: do you say he's a great German speaking writer? Do you say he's uh, a great Czech writer? What where does he live in your mind?
1: Um well he's I think he's simply considered a German writer. Hmm. I think mean, he's not I mean only the fact that he's brought up in Prague that well, it doesn't really play any any yeah. role at all, I guess. Yeah. And yeah. at least in my understanding, I don't know. But his nationality has never really been important. Yeah. And His right. mother tongue was German, and his Czech was his se- second language, and I think Yiddish as well. Yeah, and also um, you need to see that Prague back then it was part of the part of the Habsburg right. like right. Austrian Hungarian monarchy, and there were lots of different nationalities and languages there. Yeah. So, I guess no, the fact that he was born in Prague and not in Germany is not so important really, and he doesn't have a Czech German at all. Okay. I mean, his German is like the German of any other German writing author.
0: Okay, so any any differences or idiosyncrasies you see in his writing are just attributable to him being Kafka, not to him being a Czech exactly, German.
1: That's what I say, but I spoke to a friend of mine who's a um, who's a high school teacher, a German high school teacher, and he thinks that, his, uh, that Kafka's German has a little Austrian touch to it, but I don't really see that. <laughs> I mean, I see that when I read Rilke's prose and and stories. They are full of little Austrian words and expressions, but with Kafka, I don't really see that.
0: Yeah. What does it do for you if you see a little Austrian touch or a little Swiss touch? Does it... I mean, is it kind of... I don't know if I can... If we're if we're going to be able to draw an analogy here, but is it like when I would like when I would read Faulkner and and think that it's kind of like the South a little bit or or a British um... yeah it's
1: probably the same yeah. yeah yeah I mean sometimes expressions of words that are different and in Austria or in Switzerland, and it, in
0: Switzerland it puts a different region in your mind
1: exactly yeah yeah but yeah that, like yeah. oh
0: they were from here or or you think of other writers from that place or something okay. And you
1: think- Oh, yeah, he must have been Austrian because, yeah, as you know, Rick was Austrian. So you you read him and you think, oh, yeah, that's typical Austrian. That's a typical Austrian term used.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: But for Kafka, I didn't really see that.
0: And then you've also read it in English.
1: Yeah, for the first time.
0: Yeah. So how did it strike you?
1: I read the translation by Ian Johnston.
0: Oh, yep. That's a pretty famous one. It's not my preferred one. But okay, I it's... didn't know what to get, so I just—I yeah. don't know bought yeah. anything. Yeah. Yep.
1: And I can't really say it's that different from the German, German, German original. Oh, okay. I mean, Kafka's style, you know, is very matter-of-factish and very straight. Uh huh. And it's yeah, it's more report. Uh, the Metamorphosis is more report, but I think that Johnson's done a pretty good job on the tone. Yeah. When he translated it into English, there was just a few passages or words in the English translation that struck me really. And yeah, one is the very title, The Metamorphosis. I know that's been discussed a lot by people who are more experts than I am. But nevertheless, I was um, really wondering why they, when they first translated die Verwandlung into English, they used the word metamorphosis instead of the transformation.
2: Yeah.
1: Because transformation would have been the exact translation because in German, you use metamorphose only in zoology and botany. Ah. So that's kind of weird, but like probably that's the reason they chose metamorphosis instead of transformation. Yeah. And probably plus also inspired by Ovid's metamorphose, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I don't know. What do you think?
0: I think it, yeah. I think probably it, it comes from that. I mean, why wouldn't you use metamorphosis if you're talking about? turning into a bug. Mm-hmm. I, I can see why they did turn toward the uh, zoology.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I think. Mm.
0: Yeah. yeah. The English speaking world has a kind of famous, I don't know what the right word is, trope, I guess, about mm-hmm. the German sense of humor or lack thereof. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm wondering Kafka has such a dark sense of humor and the mood is so brutal and unrelenting but also very funny and yeah. it's sort of like the you don't know if it's laughing until you cry or crying until you laugh kind of humor and, and he used to read his works aloud and mm-hmm. laugh so hard that he would start crying <laughs> So I'm wondering, when you read it, do you feel like it's it's tapping into a German sense of humor that maybe the rest of the world has never really given you credit for? Or do you feel like Kafka is on an island and he's yeah. just a different kind of person?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So the German type of hum- humor is more dark. And the Austrian <laughs> as well. The Austrians yeah. are very dark in their yeah. humor. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you're right. Yeah, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah. So maybe we've been misunderstanding. Maybe we. Yeah. We, we haven't picked up on it. <laughs> okay. So let's do a draft. We're going to do 10 things we love about Kafka's metamorphosis. And we'll choose... Five each. Oh, hang on!
1: I've got some more passages that I didn't really like when the when I read the English translation.
0: Oh, okay. And I've got my translation here, Ah. and I will see if I can find the passage, and maybe we'll see Mm -hmm. if there was a better way that Johnston missed.
1: Um, When Gregor says to himself, "But I must not stay in bed uselessly." In German, it's written in the passive form, and it's "nur nicht." sich nicht aufhalten, which means one should never linger in bed uselessly. When you translate it directly, um, so it's more like a general rule. You know, it's a, like a strict principle. And so I think the passive form, like you had in the original, is much better. That would, would fit much better here. You know mm. what I mean? Okay. So if you say one should never linger in bed uselessly, is more like a principle. Yeah.
0: So this, in in my translation, it says, you can't just stay in bed doing nothing, Gregor Ah, said to himself. Is that better? Ah, Yeah.
1: Okay. Yeah. Much better. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you think? Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's one passage that really differs from, from, Kafka's original. Okay. Um, remember the scene where Gregor tries to save his favorite picture on the wall, of the lady course. With the fur. Yeah. Yeah. And when Greta and her mom starts clearing out the room and move the furniture around, and in my translation it says, "the picture of a woman dressed in nothing but fur," and hmm. in German we have no hint at all that the lady is naked underneath her fur coat. Oh. Yeah. In in the original it says that build there in lauter Pelzwerk gekleideten Dame, which means the picture of the lady dressed in a lot of fur. Yeah. You know, I mean at least I don't understand she's naked underneath her fur coat.
0: Yeah. That
1: but what what do you think? I mean maybe I'm just too prudish. <laughs> <laughs> but I think don't you think that makes a huge difference?
0: It does. I mean, and
1: if he if he had if Gregor had a um, picture of a you know a somehow erotic picture on his wall. Yeah. Different scenario than if he has just a cutout of a beautiful lady
0: that's a bad translation i don't think they i i bet the translator didn't recognize that he was introducing that idea of wearing nothing but fur that it would be a naked woman with with fur oh no oh
1: maybe it's just my english my english is too bad
0: (laughs) no i think your english is good i think you picked up on it that is how it sounds to me as well but I don't think oh, yeah. I, yeah. my guess is the translator wasn't going for that and and just accidentally, inadvertently put that in when they were trying to say something
1: else. Can you find can you find that scene in, in your book?
0: Yes. It's then the picture of the lady swathed in furs hanging on the otherwise empty wall. So swathed in furs would be like having a bunch, you know, wearing a bunch of fur. But oh, yeah you know, like over a dress or over your clothes. Okay, that's but...
1: the same as in, in German, in lauter get Kleider, like so dressed in a lot of fur, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a better translation.
1: Okay. Mm-hmm. Better, much better, good. Okay, I'm glad we covered that.
0: <laughs> Those are the only two? Yeah. Okay, so not a bad, and you felt like the Johnston got the mood right and the general atmosphere and, and the, the tone. And the tone as well, yeah. Yeah, 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 uh-huh. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. which is mm-hmm. the key. I mean, if you get the tone yeah. wrong with with Kafka, you you really kind of miss something you know it's all all mood and tone okay so we're going to do a draft five things each I'll let you take the first pick
1: I'm so glad I have to get the first pick because it's the famous first sentence I know very obvious but I remember (laughs) when I read it the first time at school when I was a teenager yeah you know and how deeply moved I was and at the same time terrified you know I mean that sentence just grabs you and takes yeah. you right into the story and i mean the first part of the first sentence begins like any other story you know right. one morning Gregor samsa was waking up from anxious dreams yeah and then bang he discovered that in his bed he has been changed into a monstrous venomous bug yeah and in german it's even more intense because you have three times the prefix un it's it's like, un is the negative prefix, like you have in, in English as well, The like an unfair or unemployed or yeah. uneasy. So we have in one sentence, we have three times the un. So it's unruhig, which is uneasy or anxious. And then we have ungeheuer, which is directly, directly translated as unsafe or monstrous. Oh. And then you have ungeziefer, which you can't really translate directly, but it means means burn, vermin.
0: Oh, like un, un- undesirable uh, or un.
1: un- no, ungeziefer un- is a noun. No, yeah. it, um, it's a noun. It's a ungeheuer ungeziefer. So ungeziefer is the noun and meaning yeah, vermin. It's like an yeah. un- animal.
0: Ugh, right. Bad. So it's uneasy, un- unsafe unanimal. Oh, yeah.
1: Ungeheuer ungeziefer. Uh, yeah. So this sentence just, yeah, it's the See? best. <laughs> Definitely my number one. And you're number one Zach?
0: well you know before i before I give you that i'm gonna I'm gonna ride right off of that and say something that that flows right out of that, but you know what you're making me think when you tell me about this is I wish that i I wasn't a person and I had been born as a sentence by Kafka oh. <laughs> whatever that was. And people would cry and tears of joy to read me or whatever it was. Okay. Moving on. Um, (laughs) I will flow right out of that and just say the whole opening. The whole thing is great, but I think people who read it, the opening part is the part that you just cannot forget where he's lying there in bed and realizes kind of what's happened to him and thinking he's got to get out of bed and there's people his family is right outside that door and what are they going to do when they see him and his employer comes over right away and all of that that's the part that's really hard to forget. Yeah. But what I love about it it's like a dream or a nightmare but the dream part of it it's like it's inside out. Is how I think of it or backwards. What it's you mean? well I I feel like in a dream you start with your normal body, and then things start getting stranger and stranger. The strangeness of your body, or of you know, if you can fly, or if you're suddenly uh, really tall, or if you're you're blind, or whatever you're dreaming about in this dream, some change that's happened to you, it takes you into this strange world. But what I love about this is that he wakes up and he's different. But then he goes right back to his normal exactly. life, right? Like yeah, he's yeah, yeah, yeah. he's an insect and his legs yeah. are wiggling and he can't get up, but the tapping of the rain on the window makes him feel dreary. He wants to go back to sleep. And then he's not thinking, "Oh, I'm a monster oh. now. What am I going to do? This yeah. is so horrendous." He thinks, "What a strenuous job I've chosen. It's so <laughs> hard. To, I have yeah. to catch these trains and eat these bad meals and and he's he's thinking about his life as a traveling salesperson. Mm -hmm. The way I read it, here's a confession. I've had moments where, you know, you're driving in a car and a car swerves in front of you and, you know, your life passes before your eyes and you're about to get in this big car crash and you think, oh, I'm about to die. But the thing that leaps into your head is like, well, at least I won't have to go into the office tomorrow (laughs) and finish that project (laughs) that I'm so tired (laughs) of working on. You know, it's like your your job has taken over. Yeah. And you're not living because of the job. And it, it, that's what I love about the metamorphosis is that it it encourages us to look at his body and say, yes, the modern world is trapped in him. He's imprisoned in this shell. It's like a metaphor for, you know, or it's like become literal that he's imprisoned in this shell. But it's also saying, like, even if you're literally trapped in this body of this insect, your mind can't even consider what that problem because you're so busy thinking about how your actual oh. life where you have a and human body is so draining <laughs> that you can't stop thinking about it. it. Like he says to hell with it. You know, he's talking about his job to hell with it. Like here he is as a bug and he's thinking about it's time for me to finally quit my job. He's not thinking like, I need to get my real body back. He's thinking I got to get out of my job.
1: <laughs> That's actually my number two. Hans. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: okay. And, yeah,
1: it's, a, it's a, Yeah. It goes in that direction. Because I love Gregor's obedience to authorities. Yeah. 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 Loyalty and dutifulness to his boss, his company. Yeah. And of course, above all, to his family. I mean, yeah. that really, that, that's funny. It makes me smile, but it also makes me sick. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Right. Well, and that that's very Kafka, uh, Kafka esque. Mm-hmm. Is how yeah. it, it we sort of laugh about it, and it's it's so bleak you almost have to laugh. Yeah. But it also there is such a, a ring of the harshness of the world in there, and the harshness of of reality. Okay. So I'll take my number yeah. two, which is kind of right in that same vein, I guess. Well, actually, I'll just say this about your number two, and then I'll take my number two. His, he's so here he is changed into an insect. And he says, Oh, well, we can't stay in bed. Yeah, (laughs) Like, we gotta, like, gotta do something, like, gotta keep going. And, and he's, he's so tightly wound. And his schedule is so tight and imposed on him that if he's even, you know, a couple of hours late, the head clerk comes over to the house to say, like, where is he? He can't even be sick, or or you can't hide. There's something about that. This being so vivid is that he's in bed and he can barely move and he's got this ache in his side and all this and he just wants to sleep. And then all of a sudden there's all these people on the other side of the door clamoring to get in, including this clerk. It's so good. But I will go to my number two, mm-hmm. which is Greta, the sister. Mm hmm. This to me is Kafka at his his most beautiful, but also his bleakest and just the whole darkness of it that uh, she starts out and she's so kind and so wonderful to him. And you're feeling so bad for him and what's happened to him and, and this situation he's in. And you realize, you know, his father's hitting him with a stick to try to drive yeah. him back, and he's he's talking, but he sounds like a bug. And it's, there's all these things where you just think, oh no, this is this is someone who life has imposed this horrible thing on him, and the world is now going to be very cruel. And then his sister comes in, and she gives him milk, which was his favorite yeah. food, but it disgusts yeah. him now. And then mm-hmm. she does such a wonderful gesture where she brings him a wide selection of things to see what he wants to eat. And it's rotting Mm -hmm. vegetables and bones and old cheese. And and there's this moment where I think, I want to be the sister. I want to be sad, but also thoughtful and caring. And if if someone comes to me in need and maybe they've had an accident or maybe they've had some made some personal mistake, I want to be as generous and as Hmm. thoughtful as somebody who would Go get a lot of food and say, well, let me, here's a way to see what you might like to eat. But then it's Kafka that. It He turns it around. So, you know, another story might be about how beautiful their relationship is. And Gregor has been hoping that on Christmas Eve, he could announce that he was going to yeah. pay for her to go to the conservatory to play the violin. And that could have been a way to end the story was that he gets his human body back and he makes that announcement and he repays Greta for her kindness. And instead, that's not even... I don't think Kafka even considered that that might be Mm-mm. a way to no. end the story. <laughs> uh-uh. That's just a way to make it more painful. And he can't thank her. And that makes him feel awful that he, it makes it hard to accept her help because he can't even say thank you. And so he starts to dread her coming into the room because he feels mm-hmm. so bad. Yeah. For her. yeah. And then she turns on him and she can't bear the sight of him. And that's heartbreaking. And then she is kind of the, the emblem of of moving on and the family kind of giving but, up on him, which is but how awful. did it
1: happen? Why did she turn around like that?
0: You mean why did she give up on him and and become, yeah,
1: exactly, and yeah, I become think, the, the opposite?
0: I think that's Kafka saying <laughs> we might all want to think that we're going to take care of the afflicted and the mm. the the weak and the poor, but you know this is this is not what we do. What we do is we move on and we we value the youth and strength and freedom and and we sort of we turn a blind eye to how much suffering there is mm. and how much suffering there is that's invisible to us. I think you could look at it and say this is all about how we walk past the starving man who's sleeping mm. on the sidewalk or yeah. something. Uh- but I think you can also look at it and say this is us not recognizing how much pain there is in the traveling salesman who is our neighbor or the our Um. colleagues at work. We're all in this kind of miserable state of suffering. And yet we act like, well, if you get a a little raise or you get to take a half a day off someday, like that should be enough and you should be happy now and and all should be good and stop complaining and, and don't even think about how unhappy you are.
1: Hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I agree. I love that scene when Greta, when Greta brings first she brings the the bread and the milk, and then she brings all sorts of different kinds of food. Yeah, yeah, that I really like it. But it wasn't among my favorite five.
0: Okay, so what's um, your number three?
1: Um, it's a long one. Hmm. It's just it's simply the way we slowly along the story we find out how Gregor acts as an insect, or yeah. he looks like an insect. He realizes his new shape. In the end of the first paragraph, it says, his numerous legs, <laughs> pitifully thin in comparison to the rest of his circumference, flickered helplessly before his eyes. <laughs> you know, in the first sentence, you don't really understand what's going on. Okay, right. he turned into an insect. Ooh, okay. But then, Those you read legs. about his legs, yeah. and you begin to understand that he's really transformed into a beetle. <laughs> <laughs> and you picture him lying there on his back with his skinny little legs flickering in the air, yeah, and then you slowly start making a picture of 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 Gregor how he looks like and how he behaves, right, and it's really slowly, you know he Gregor and us we discover how his new body and his new self looks like
0: right it just and yeah,
1: and even i mean you you see that even more when the story goes on. For example, when he um remember when he feels much more comfortable when he lies underneath the sofa yeah and or when he oh, I love that scene when he finds out that um crawling on the ceiling is a lot of fun yes, you know he, he's he's overjoyed.
0: I had that on my list as well that there was ah, this okay. feeling of of becoming who you are, of letting yourself mm-hmm. be who you truly are and I thought you know it might be. Uh, someone who's gay coming out of the closet, or being comfortable with your your parents, or your race, or your hair color, or your body size, or your 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 love of science fiction, or what, whatever it is that you're not letting yourself mm-hmm. be free to be. There's a a lot in here that makes you feel that way. Where it's like, yes, he's he's a bug now, and he's yeah yeah yeah. When he, he's,
1: remember when when they, when the mother falls over and spills coffee, and then Gregor couldn't stop himself snapping. His jaws in the air a few times, yeah. you know, <laughs> I mean, that's the first time he, he acts like an animal Yeah. Or, or when he falls into his onto all his legs. And then it says, hang on, right. uh, for the first time that morning, he felt a general physical well-being. The small limbs had firm floor under them. They obeyed perfectly as he noticed to his joy. I mean, joy. He feels yeah, joy. He's yeah. a beetle, and he feels joy. Yeah, but yet but it's really the first time he allows himself, uh, himself, to act like an insect.
0: But it's like with Kafka too. He's not so simple as to sort of make it be that that's the lesson we take from the story, because <laughs> yeah. he's also the mother makes the point like, well, if we clear out the furniture, mm-hmm. we're abandoning hope that he'll be anything but an insect, and and Gregor feels pulled in that direction too, right? He's thinking well, what if this is temporary? And, and should I still like music? And what if I don't like it? And, and I think that's a big part of all those things that I mentioned about you know being comfortable with who you are and your body size and all of that. There's also still this pull of like, well, what if this really isn't me? Or what if, mm-hmm. what if I'm giving up something that it's going to be hard if I never get it back? I, I don't want to know for sure that I can't get that back. And that's what makes it so hard to go through change.
1: True. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So good. So. What's your number? Uh, what Where are we are up to now? Three? 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 Four?
0: Four? Okay. So this, this is similar to the things that, that you've said already, I think, but I'm going to phrase it this way. What's not in the story? And the big thing that's not in the story is trying to figure out how this happened. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah,
0: he's so right. (laughs) He never asked. He never asked. never asked. And he's not angry at God or the universe or, you know, there's no like, well, there must be some scientific explanation. Have I been experimented upon or was I bitten by a radioactive beetle yeah. or, you know, something like that. Most writers would put that in and most yeah. characters, you know, would feel like the character had to have some um, A um gypsy put a curse on him or, you know, there'd be something. And this one... There's no explanation offered and there's none that Gregor ever seeks. And sometimes he gets angry at his family, but all of the emotions that we see are not anger about his condition. They're anger about the way humans feel toward one another. If there's something that comes between them that makes communication difficult and understanding impossible. It feels like this is a situation that we could all be in with other people if there's something that, comes between us or gets in our way or that we we come to feel this way about other people. Yeah. Mm.
1: Very good, very good.
0: Okay, what's your number four?
1: Um, My number four, we're back in the first part after he had just spoken to his his long monologue to the manager through the door, you know when the manager is outside the door and he's inside the door yeah, and the manager didn't really understand what he was saying. And now Gregor is determined to open the door, to see what happens. Yeah. This is fate, no? He yeah. wants to be seen and see the reaction by the others because there are two options: if the family and the manager were shocked, then he's really a beetle, and then he would not not long longer be responsible for for his job or his family. Yeah. And it says um, he would no longer be burdened with res- responsibility and could be calm. But if they behave normally, so. He wasn't a bug or a beetle. Then he just try to catch the eight o'clock train. <laughs> <laughs> right. I love that So right, cool and down to earth. No, it's fate. Yeah, I just open the door and see what happens. So if I'm a beetle, I'm no longer <laughs> responsible. If I'm not, I'll just catch the train. <laughs> 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 I love right. That
0: he season. doesn't think like, well, what what do I eat now? What's everyone else going to say? He just sort of like, yeah, he's he's. <laughs> You know, it's almost like, you know, Wiley Coyote when he's chasing the roadrunner and he runs off the cliff and he keeps running. And as long as he doesn't think about being out in the, you know, above a canyon, he's okay. But as soon as somebody points out to him that he's got nothing underneath him, it's when he falls, you know, and it's almost like his routine of his job is like that. He's had this great break. It's like he's run off the cliff. He's now a beetle, but he still is kind of like, well, as long as... Is nobody's too shocked. I certainly yeah. could use the job, and and what that's what true. that's my obligation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I am going to take as my number four just the other characters. We've talked about the family a bit, but just the minor characters in here oh, I love so I much. Know, I know what the, the head clerk who yes. who screams as he runs down the stairs and and the cleaner. That old the widow, strong
1: strong and bony cleaning lady, (laughs) (laughs) who
0: sees something in him because he's like a survivor, and she says, "Come over here, you dirty old beetle!" Like she's she's, and he says he's probably meant to be friendly. It's like those people who are beaten down by life, and then. They're the ones who are good at. They volunteer at schools and take care of the kids who no one else will handle, or or they adopt the dog that nobody else wants because the hair is all mangy or something. And then she says it's all been done. She says at the end, like she's thrown Gregor in the garbage or something. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, but what I, I don't I don't understand that scene, Hans. I don't understand that scene when she got rid of Gregor's body. Yeah, and then. The father's reaction is, uh, we'll give her notice tonight. Yeah. Why? Don't need her. Yeah, you don't need her?
0: They were keeping her around Yeah. to take care of (laughs) their problem. Yeah. It's been done. (laughs) It's been done. And she was so proud of it. And then they're going to fire her. They don't say like, oh, please keep our secret. Or it's like, okay, well now we're done with you. And then the other, yeah. the, the last minor character are those gentlemen lodgers with their beards mm-hmm. and the way the three of them are always moving in sync and, and the way Gregor thinks of them and everything. It's just, I love those those characters as well.
1: Yeah, you can really picture them, can't you? Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: Okay. Number five. Uh, my number five. Well, again, it's, well, it's funny and I love it about the metamorphosis, but it also drives me mad. That Gregor's never ceasing understanding, consider uh, considering, and he's he's got sympathy for his family. He feels sorry for them, and he feels sorry that he can't fund them anymore. He finds excuses, yeah. and even when he's being abused and pushed by the father, and he feels sorry for his mother, and it takes him such a long time to realize that he's being neglected by Greta. But yeah. then, and that's that's what I really like the final. Oh, yeah, finally, when she empties his room against his will, and that's a big change, I think, thank God, because he finally develops some kind of fighting spirit, yeah, for me it's a bit like a break in the whole story because everything changes after this. Gregor's being neglected before that he was cared for by by Greta, but now he's been neglected he's hurt by the apple thrown by the father. Mm. They don't clean the room anymore, and he slowly starves himself to death. Yeah. And yeah, and then in the end, the family is relieved by his death.
0: They're relieved. And that was my number five as well, the ending. Ah. And the way uh, the last sentence in my translation is, and it was as if to confirm their newfound dreams and their good intentions, that when they reached their destination, their daughter got up before they did and stretched her young body. And it just seems so, what a perfect way to end this story that the sister is going to live now. She's going to live and grow and love and be a human being with all the the pleasures of youth and sex (laughs) and everything else ahead of her. A young body that can stretch, but that we just sort of take that for granted, don't we? That it's like just having a a body that's not a beetle. That's something we, Mm -hmm. we don't really... Thank our, we don't count our blessings well, about okay, that every day. She's a
1: caterpillar. She's a caterpillar <laughs> and she turns into a butterfly. Fly.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Ready for marriage.
0: They're just glad to be moving forward. Goodbye, Gregor. You're yeah. no longer this weird thing that lives in where our son used to live. Mm-hmm. Does the ending make you sad at all?
1: Um, well, not sad, more upset, I guess, mm. and angry. Yeah. But I remember when I read it the first time as a teenager. Yeah. Back then I felt something like a relief. Yeah. That Gregor ended his horrible being yeah. his face being yeah. neglected and hidden in a small room.
0: You probably closed the book and got up and stretched your young body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: and now that I can't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I see it differently now. <laughs>
0: yeah, now that you have to roll yeah. like sway sideways back and forth, back and forth before you get out of bed. <laughs> with your legs wiggling in the air. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, when I was a teenager I saw it differently. I Yeah. I for me it was a relief yeah. when he died. Yeah. But now well it's a bit different I guess.
0: Now I just feel like we're doomed not to really connect that we have. There's so much sadness in the world and and pain and sorrow and hard feelings
1: being so gloomy
0: <laughs> yeah but you know think that... <laughs> but but here's the thing i also yeah. get really excited when i read stuff like that because i think i agree with it and it's depressing and it's sad but i also feel really close to kafka i feel like he did it he right. managed to put it into this beautiful art that's the metamorphosis too he's taken this that's such a dark set of Mm. such a dark set of ideas and beliefs and and views but he's made it something for me kind of sparkling because i feel that i don't know that sympathy with him and and just the connection that i feel with him and with this story because it's so dark
1: Mm. so you feel like a relief as well to that ending
0: it's almost like when you walk outside and it's raining and you stop blaming the rain and start celebrating how good it feels on your skin. And you, you look up at the sky and you think, yes, rain, rain on me, rain on my face, rain harder. I love it. I love feeling it. I feel alive now. That's kind of how I feel where it's like I read the ending and I just think, yes, it's it's sad and poor Kafka was pretty miserable, but it's a shared misery because I'm here reading it and I feel it too. Yeah,
1: okay. <laughs> oh, that's our old Hans.
0: Okay, yeah, that's him. He's back. Let's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Nabokov said that the family were parasites who yeah. had fattened themselves on Gregor's absolutely. body. You agree he, with that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But he let it happen mm. as well. Didn't he? I mean, it's yeah. not like he did anything against it.
0: He was doing it even before he changed.
1: Yeah. I mean, his father stopped working.
0: Yeah, right. So
1: there was a large amount of debts. Yep. And his sister and mother, they didn't work either. And they were so dependent on Gregor. Yeah. And I think that Gregor liked it somehow, don't you think? I mean, you know, know, he's in charge of his family's arrangements. He's the sponsor of the family. Don't you think he enjoyed his position? The head of the family, really.
0: He seemed to like being a martyr.
1: And he's proud.
0: He's proud. And he there's something about when his father then has to go back to work when Gregor's Mm. no longer there to provide. His father goes through a little metamorphosis. He becomes, you know, he becomes more confident and he looks better. And he's sort of all of this. And you kind of feel that that's you feel the sting of that from Gregor's point of view. Mm. Almost like well, he could have been doing this all the time. And why, exactly. you know. He
1: could. He could have. <laughs> I mean, he was just lying there. He can, was hardly able to move. And now he's a proud bank servant yeah, with a shiny uniform. Mm? <sighs> so, so you reckon he liked them being dependent on himself? Or am I being too hard on Gregor?
0: I don't know if he was conscious of how much he liked it, but he certainly played that role. Something kept him working and something kept him so miserable. He didn't quit his job. He didn't move away. He was feeling obligated, but there was no reason for him to be so uh, self-abnegating, except if there was something about him that was feeding off of this feeling of duty or obligation or uh, self-sacrifice.
1: Yeah, and what I find terribly disturbing is the fact that the family, they don't even try to help Gregor. You know, I mean, can you imagine your son turns into a beetle? Yeah. And what do you do? Nothing. I mean, you've, you sent Greta to get the locksmith and the doctor, but that didn't really work. So what would you do? I mean, you would do anything, hospital doctors, witch doctors, anything. Yeah. But,
0: but isn't that kind of what parents do? Like how many kids have come into their, (laughs) um, you know, how many 20 year olds have gone to their parents and said I'm moving to Hollywood I want to be an actor and the parents thought is what is this going to mean for me what is this going to mean for us does this mean you're going to be a burden on us does this mean you know why can't you be an accountant why can't you why can't you be something where you're not going to be a threat to us and to our well-being and our retirement and then you know the person chooses Oh, okay, I guess I should be an accountant. And then it becomes like, well, now I'm an accountant because I'm taking care of my parents or because I'm mm. I'm doing this. And and it's kind of a, a story of children and parents, I think.
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Oh. Huh.
0: Can we end this on a happier note?
1: Oh, yes. Because <laughs> okay. Okay. I have a surprise bonus okay. question for you today. Oh,
0: oh my goodness. <laughs> oh no. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready.
1: You wake up in the middle of the night and feel the urge to draw a cartoon. You grab pen and paper and draw a little Calvin and Hobbes story (laughs) in which Calvin (laughs) builds his famous transmogrifier. Uh All of a sudden, Calvin becomes a real boy and asks you to choose between two buttons on his machine. When you press the left one, you'll be transformed into the Jack of the past. 30 years ago, when one of your dreams from back then will come true. You have the chance to travel through Austria, Switzerland, and Germany for a week and get people to read the Rilke poems to you in German, Ooh. which was your dream from back then. When, yeah, you were that was. when you press the other button, you will be transfor- transformed into the check of the future one year from now, and the dream will come true that you will have then. Of course, you'd have to tell your business and myself your dream in order for it to come true. Which button do you choose, Hans?
0: I will go back into the past of and course. travel for a week because yes. you know why? I am terrified that if I even think of a dream that I might have a year from now,
2: yeah.
0: it will never come true and I will be <laughs> yeah. intensely disappointed. So I'll go back in the past and I will have some <laughs> friendly Germans uh if I can get them to stop talking English to me for a few minutes. <laughs> And uh, forced them to read uh, Rilke to me in German.
1: And your dream will come true. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: It's kind of like that other Calvin and Hobbes story where the where they get a wish, and Calvin is wishing for all kinds of things. I can't remember if it's all this money or all this power he wants or something. And Hobbes wishes for a tuna fish sandwich. Tuna fish sandwich. And then in the final panel, he looks at Calvin. He's eating a sandwich, and he says, "I got my wish." (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> okay well let's leave things there Blum, this has been such a treat for me thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature
1: it was so lovely talking to you Hans.
2: <laughs>
0: okay there we go we cleared the decks enough wallowing around and all that me 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 stuff Kafka. What a treat. My thanks to Blume, my dear old friend. Not old, but long-time friend for joining me. And to Kafka, of course, for digging so deep into the harsh and bleak world. I laugh and cry with him at precisely the same moment. Okay, what else? Our episode with Jonah Lair is next, and we're giving away his books. Signed copies of them. These are great. Everyone should read them, especially if you like mysteries. But really... These are not just for fans of mysteries, but for fans of how narratives work and how we communicate with one another and how we think. So head over to our Instagram account for more details about that. And we'll have more in the next episode, too. And my thanks to you, dear listeners, for indulging me today. I just realized that I I called you monstrous vermin earlier. But as Alfred Hitchcock said when he was accused of calling his actors cattle. And the interviewer said, Really? Jimmy Stewart? You worked with Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. They're cattle? Is that how you think of them? And Alfred Hitchcock said, well, some of them are nice cattle. So yes, you're monstrous vermin, my dear listeners, but let's not fool fool ourselves about what you are. You're beetles stuck on your back in bed, just as I am, just as we all are. But some of you are nice monstrous vermin. I'm Jack Wilson, losing subscribers with his <laughs> That was Bloom's idea, by the way. Maybe she could come on the show and the listeners would drop from two million a year to zero. We'll see, I guess. But do come back at least for one more week with Joan Alaire. Give us one more week. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.